This is a, a message that I struggled with for two weeks and worked on and reworked and thought about and went back to and, and kept saying, and I almost didn't do it, kept saying, Lord, are you sure? Are you sure that, you know, that we need to study this? He's sure. So we're going to do it. Genesis 43, beginning in verse 11. You remember the story? Israel and his sons. Now, Wednesday night we got a bit ahead of this, so we're backtracking a little bit. But Israel, Jacob, and his sons, nine of them, are back in Canaan's land. The famine is intense. Simeon, his second oldest son, is in Egypt. And he is imprisoned there. And Benjamin, his youngest son, is with him. But the only way he can get Simeon out of prison is to send Benjamin with the other brothers to this, this guy over in Egypt. We know it's Joseph. He doesn't know that. And so Jacob finally turns the corner and begins to trust God. And we see this when he's called Israel. Genesis 43:11. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best products of the land in your bags and carry down to the man as a present a little balm and a little honey, aromatic gum and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money in your hand. Take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. And take your brother also and arise and return to the man and may God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man so that he will release to you your older brother and Benjamin as for me if I am bereaved of my children Israel says I am bereaved and we talked about how Jacob last week we talked that he was acting more like Israel come the end of this chapter because he had resigned himself to God resigned himself to the will of God said you know what come hell or high water no matter what happens I'm going to trust the Lord reminds me of the three friends in Daniel chapter 3 Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego who say hey Nebuchadnezzar we know that if we don't bow down to this statue and you attempt to throw us into the fiery furnace, we know our God will protect us. But even if he doesn't, we're still resigned to his will. We still will not bow down. And this is where Jacob is at. Hey, if I'm bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. If I lose them, I lose them. It's God's call, not mine. But if you have to be carefully picking your way through these verses, you may see something that runs kind of contrary to the idea that Israel is acting in faith. Because what does he do? Look at verse 11 and 12 again. It tells us that he says, take some of the best products of the land in your bags and carry down to the man as a present a little balm and a little honey, aromatic gum and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds and take double the money. Now Israel, if you are trusting God, why are you packing up the backpacks? Why are you stuffing them full? I asked the question Wednesday night, and I didn't give the answer. I told people Wednesday night, you've got to come back Sunday to hear why. Why would Jacob do this? Matt, if he's trusting God, why not just send the brothers? Don't take anything. Just go and, and show up and pray and ask God to protect you and provide for you and take care of you. Why? Fill the bags full of presents and gifts. This sounds like Jacob, folks. This sounds like the work, the thinking of a schemer. One who is saying, okay, there's got to be a way to do this. There's got to be a way to work this out. And as soon as everybody has a seat. Are we good? <laughs> no, it's okay. It doesn't distract me at all. Why? Why does Jacob do this? 
Why not just trust if he's really trusting? Now, understand, I believe he really is trusting God. I'm absolutely convinced of it. And I've read over and over and over this, and I'm sure that he is trusting God. So what is Jacob doing? Is he just trying to buy a vowel? You know, take a little extra money? Maybe that'll soften the heart a bit, scheme a little bit, plan a little bit, get the boys back? 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 24 tells us something, and this is critical for all of us as believers and for anyone who may not have given their life to Jesus yet. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 7, 24, Paul says, Each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Listen again. Each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. In other words, if you happen to be a banker when you're called to the Lord, you don't have to quit. If you happen to build boats, you don't have to stop. If you happen to fly airplanes, that's cool. If you happen to work at the supermarket, okay. Sometimes people will come to Jesus and they think, my life is going to be changed. He's going to radically alter me. So I've got to change everything. I gotta quit all the sports that I'm involved in in high school. I can't hang out with, with the same friends. I can't, I've gotta change everything. Paul says, wait a minute. Says each one is to remain with God, with God is key there, in that condition in which he was called. A lot of people, when they come to Christ, they're stunned to recognize two, three months down the line, a year down the line, that they're still the same person, just with a different focus, a different spirit. You are changed internally, inside out. But you remain in that condition. Paul is actually talking here to several different groups of people. Paul's talking to married people. Hey, if you're a woman who comes to Christ and you're married, stay married. Whether your husband does or not, stay married. Stay in the condition in which you were called. If you happen to be a slave, Paul is talking in those times. If you happen to be a slave, hey, you're still a slave. Stay in the condition in which you were called. If you happen to be uncircumcised, and this was a huge issue back then, if you happen to be uncircumcised, stay in that condition. And a lot of young Christian men went, oh, right. What's the point? Jacob is Israel. Israel is Jacob. And what we'll see, and we've noticed in the past, that his, his name tends to change depending on his behavior, not so for the rest of Genesis. Now for the rest of Genesis, you're going to see either Israel's name or Jacob's name used interchangeably, indiscriminately, because he's the same guy. When Jesus came to Jacob, when he called him, when he saved him, when he changed him and began to mold him, Jacob brought along some things that he had learned. Jacob was a savvy guy. Jacob was a shrewd man. Jacob had street smarts. And Jesus would, would say, and you may be surprised to discover this this morning, Jesus would say, that's a good thing. When Jacob says, hey, I put money in the bags, extra money, and aromatic gum and pistachio nuts and all these extra gifts, that's smart. Why? Because Jacob has one concern, the salvation of his sons. Man, I want to save my boys. And yes, I trust the Lord, and may God Almighty go with you. But at the same time, I will use all of my resources to save them. I'm resigned to the Lord, but I will use my resources for the Lord. Do you get that? Does that make sense? If it does, just give a simple nod, and I'll know that we're on the same page. Okay. 
I want you to think about that and consider that story as the backdrop for what I believe the Lord wants us to hear this morning. Now flip in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Remember, Jacob, a resigned man but a resourceful man and a man who uses his resources for the sake of salvation. Let that stick in your brains. Luke 16, verse 1. And you can turn there because we're going to stay there for most of the rest of the morning. And Jesus was also saying to his disciples, okay, it's important, to his disciples, this is discipleship teaching here. This is intense. This is focused teaching for the people who knew Jesus. Do you know Jesus? Do you understand something of his character? Keep that in mind as well. Jesus begins to tell a parable. He says, there was a rich man who had a manager. And this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Now the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. And I am ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do. So that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors. And he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Okay, take your bill, sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. Now, up to this point, we can follow this to a degree. It makes some sense. We're not sure where Jesus is going with it, but it makes some sense for us. And I want you to see some things before we go any further. We are just like the manager in this story. In every way except one. We are exactly like the manager. How's that? Number one, if you're taking notes, just like the manager, everything we have belongs to the master. Everything we have belongs to the master. Verse 1 tells us that there was a manager who was reported to him. The master was reported that he was squandering his possessions. The manager managed his possessions. All he had was what the master gave him to manage. And we're the same way. We have nothing on our own. Now, this is a concept that, as simple as it may seem, is one of the toughest for people anywhere to get. For Christians to understand, I don't own my car. I don't own my property or my house. I don't own my clothes. I don't own my money, my bank account. I don't even own my Bible. I don't own anything. I manage it. It's His. I got nothing but that which he has given me. I've shared this example before. One of my favorite old shows, The Cosby Show. You may recall there's a, a scene where Bill Cosby's sitting in the kitchen and Vanessa, his daughter, comes in and she wants to get a new outfit and he's saying no and they're having a little argument and finally says, but, she says, but dad, we're rich. And he says, no, I'm rich. You have nothing. <laughs> and that is us. God is vastly wealthy. You and I have zip. All we have is what He's given us. You know, if we truly understood that, envy, jealousy would fade away. Because we'd look at someone else who has more than we do and say, Wow, God's given you even more. That's great. I've got less. That's what God's given me. Great. 
We are managers. Everything we have belongs to our master. Psalm 8, verse 5. The psalmist said, You have made him a little lower than God. And you crown him with glory and with majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. The works of your hands. And you put all things under his feet. Who put all things under our feet? Our master. We are simply managers, caretakers. It's a hard lesson, folks, but it is invaluable. And if we got it, guess what else would go away? Financial worry would be gone if we believe this. Because if he's the master and I'm just the manager, whatever I have is what he's given me. And if I lose something, well, he's going to provide something else. Because he's the master. Second thing to jot down, just like the manager, we will give an accounting to our master. This one's going to make you shift in your seats a little bit. Verse 2 says that the master called in the manager and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management. And folks, we will do the same thing with our master. Just like this manager, we'll give an accounting. The Bible's clear about it. Now, it's different than what you might think, or what you may have heard, or what tends to be the general or generic view in our world. The view of everybody lining up, and at the end is the big, huge, you know, big throne, and God's there, and he's got the gavel, and one person after another is going up, and we have this long line at his judgment day, and we're all going. Let me remind you of something. If you are in Christ, you have had your judgment day. It happened at the cross. Your judgment has been paid you will not stand in a long line with the opening of books to see if you made it. However, there is an accounting. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Another one, if we understood, would change everything about how we live. Everything's exposed to God. He sees it all. We may think we can hide it from our wives. We may think that we can hide it from our pastor or from our friends or from our family. We may think there are things in our lives that no one else knows, but guess what? It's all out there. Do you know how freeing a concept that is? Especially as a believer in Christ who is saved by grace, when I know it's all out there and I mess up, which I am bound to do, that I can stand up and go, I'm sorry. I sinned. I failed. It's out there. Well, we're all going to give an accounting. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And then now, Rick, you just said we don't have to do that. We don't have to go before that big judgment seat, that throne and the gavel and all that and, and get, listen, this is a different judgment. The judgment for believers is a different judgment than a judgment for non-believers. The judgment seat of Christ is literally, in the Greek, the Bema seat. This was a seat that had more of a platform. This is the platform that was used in the Olympic Games. We're having the Olympics right now. In the Olympic Games in Greece, or any sporting event, the platform was where the, the referee sat, and at the end of the race, you'd go up the platform to receive either your gold medal or your silver medal or your bronze medal. That's what Jesus is talking about. But we are going to account for how we've handled what he's given us. This is not an issue of salvation. This is an issue of what's going to happen next. We're saved. Like I said, it's a done deal. If you're in Christ, you are saved. But we will all give an accounting to the Lord of how I've managed his resources, his property, his gifts, his finances. I'm going to account for that. There will be a time when I go before God and say... 
Here's what I've done with what you've given me. Now understand again, in that accounting, God will not say you didn't do enough so you're going to hell. He'll say, okay, here's your reward based on what you've done. We already have the reward of heaven. There are other rewards on top of that. You may not have been aware. But we will give an accounting to the Lord. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10-15, through 15, I won't read it this morning, but it tells us that our management will be assessed based on what we've done that has eternal value. What I've done in this world that has eternal significance, God's going to look for that in the accounting. Not the house that I've built. And, you know, I'm, we're working really hard in my family. You've got, I mean, we keep telling you house stories, but we're working very hard not to let that become the center of all our, our attention. And it's easy to do. But you know what? For all the work and energy and effort that will go into this house over here, it's going to burn. It has no eternal lasting value whatsoever. I'll tell you what has eternal lasting value. The relationship I have with my builder, Niccolo, and his wife, Charlene. That's eternal. That's worth something to me. That is something that is much more important. And you know, when we, side note here, when we first got into this relationship, Niccolo and I, we, we talked about now, okay, we're friends, we're going to be in a business relationship, and you're my pastor. How's that going to work? <laughs> Here's how it works the relationship is primary. It's more important than the money, it's more important than the building, it's more important than anything else that happens in this project. Even if the whole thing got shut down, the relationship comes first. Well, that's easy to say, Rick, and hard to do. You're right. Niccolo is already a real pain. <laughs> totally kidding. I love it. We're having a great time. That's going to cost me $2,000, I know. <laughs> Anyway, just like the manager, we're going to give an accounting. And folks, what you do of eternal value, relationships, loving people, taking care of people, that will last. What you do of non-eternal value, building stuff, it's going to burn. doesn't mean don't build. It just means keep it in perspective. Now, the manager in the story is obviously concerned because he has nowhere to go. He's got nothing to do with his life. And verses 3 through 7 are pretty clear and easy to understand. He decides to go out and have a going out of business sale. So what he's doing, he's going out of business, so he's going to have a sale with his master's possessions. It's a little dishonest. And he goes to people and starts saying, hey, listen, how much do you owe my master? A hundred barrels of oil? Okay, let's cut that in half. Okay, I'm going I'm to sign off there. At this point, he's still in charge. You know, he's not completely fired yet, so he's working deals underneath the table. Why is he doing it? Because when he's fired, he has to have somewhere to go. And if he can cut some deals, scratch some people's backs, they can scratch his back when he's fired. He's making friendships under obligation. He's getting into some relationships where people owe him something so that when he loses, when he fails, when he's fired, he has somewhere to go. Now, like I said, that's easy enough to follow until the master comes along and actually commends the manager for his behavior. Verse 8. And this master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. And I read that and I get to the end of this parable and I say, Lord Jesus, where are you going with this? All the other parables have a good ending. This one, you're telling me that this guy does a deceitful, dishonest thing, and his master says, right on. If I'm going to practice business this way, are you saying, Lord, the ends justify the means? 
that as long as I get to a certain point, I can do anything to get there? That deceit works and dishonesty pays? Is that what you're saying, Lord? Listen closely and understand this. It's so important. And I know this parable absolutely bugs Penelope to no end. We've talked about it over and over. And it bugs me too. This is a tough one. But understand that Jesus is giving a good lesson from a bad example. He's giving a good lesson from a bad example. Why is this shrewd manager commended? Not for dishonesty. Not because of his actions, but because he is shrewd in setting himself up for the future. And that's what Jesus is focusing on. Remember, he's talking to his disciples, and his disciples know Jesus. Do you know Jesus? Do you know that Jesus would not encourage deceit and dishonesty? If you know that, then that can't be what this is about. What it's about is planning for the future. And just like the manager number three, we need to be planning for the future. We need to plan ahead. Proverbs chapter 30. Mike loves the Proverbs. Proverbs 30, verse 24 and 25. Four things are small on the earth, but they are exceedingly wise. Now, by the way, this section is a great thing to study on your own. I'd encourage you this week to read these verses in Psalm 30 about the four things that are small but wise. We're not going to get into all four of them, but that's something to do on your own. But verse 25 tells us one of the four things that's small but exceedingly wise. The ants. The ants are not a strong people. I love how they call them people. <laughs> Little people. They're not a strong people, but they prepare their food in the summer. By the way, you know why ants, when they're all in that long little line, when one of them dies, you know what, why they pick the body up and then kind of carry it along beside the little row? Have you ever seen an ant do that? They're carrying a little dead body of another ant. I think it's so they can get in the carpool lane and pass all the other ants. I'm pretty sure. Pretty sure. But the ants are smart because they prepare during the summer. They gather food. They get ready so that when winter comes, they're good to go. They can stay buried in their holes underground safe. They are smart. They are ready. And in this parable, Jesus is saying, like this shrewd manager, prepare ahead. Plan ahead. Open your eyes and get ready so that when your life fails, you've got somewhere to go. Jesus is just huge on readiness. I haven't done it. Sometime I will. But go through and look at all the times Jesus says, be ready in Scripture. Be prepared. Keep your eyes open. I'm coming soon. He says it over and over and over. And man, we come to Christ and we're excited about Jesus and we love church and everything's good and then we just kind of get distracted and forget that He's coming back at all. And that's the way that we are unlike the manager. We are unlike the manager in that we tend to be lacking in shrewdness. We lack shrewdness. Look at the last half of verse 8. Jesus says, For the sons of this age, the people of the world, are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And that's like a stunning statement. Pow! Jesus says, Worldly people are smarter than you guys are. Why is that? Because we come to the Lord... And we think he's got to change us and we've got to help him along and so we've got to dump everything and become innocent and stupid. We become Christians with just targets on our forehead. Our eyes are open like deers caught in the headlights. I believe. I'm following the Lord. I don't have a clue. And Jesus says, no. No. 
Belief in me is not stupid. There is no such thing, by the way, folks, as blind faith. Faith is not blind. Faith is intelligent. Non-living with, living without faith, that's blind. Living outside of faith, just rejecting God, ignoring all of His handiwork, that's blind. Jesus says, man, as believers, you should be the smartest people in the world. The most shrewd, the most intelligent, using your resources wisely. Like Martha Stewart. Did you know the day that she was sentenced to prison for five months, her stocks went up so much that she made $11 million? If you said, Rick, would you go to prison for five months for $11 million? I wouldn't take it, but I would think twice. I would pause for a moment. 11 million bucks. Now, I'm not saying Martha Stewart is one to emulate or an example to follow any more than a shrewd manager. But this is a wise, smart businesswoman. This is a woman that when she gets out is set for the rest of her life because she has been shrewd. Dishonest? Yes. Absolutely. Follow her example? No, don't. But she planned ahead. She planned for her future she is a shrewd businesswoman in the temporal world. This is the important key. Listen to this. Jesus is not telling us to be more worldly. He's saying the sons of this age are better at planning for their future temporarily than the sons of light are in planning for their future eternally. Now stop a minute. Every look up here, let me ask you a difficult question. Are you using all of your resources to plan for an eternal future? Now this is why I struggled for two weeks, because I'm not, folks. Don't do as I do, do as I say. <laughs> Are you using your resources for eternity or for temporary living? How am I handling that which God has given me? And this is where it gets difficult, folks. The Bible tells me, teach, says, teach me good discernment and knowledge, and the solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil, shrewdness, discernment is the same thing. But where it gets difficult is these qualities, this shrewdness that Jesus is talking about in the parable is applied to money. He's talking about money. He wants us to think about how we use our money. And every time the word money comes up in a church, everybody, myself included, in every church I've ever been in, go, oh, okay. <laughs> Does the guy sitting next to me know how much I give or don't give? Does the pastor know? Let me tell you something at the bridge, I don't know. In fact, we made a decision, the elders and I, early on in this church, that none of the, the leadership would not know. Why? So that it wouldn't make a difference in how we talked to or treated people. So what you give is between you and the Lord. And listen, because I have a few more things to say about money, but you need to understand this has nothing to do with your personal... Well, no, it has everything to do with your personal giving. It has nothing to do with how I feel about you or what I know. Nothing. It has nothing to do with where the Bridge Christian Fellowship is at financially, because I'll tell you what, right now, we are eons further along financially than I thought we would ever be at this stage. Praise God. But it does have to do with personal finances and personal handling of money. And folks, whether you have a lot or a little, we all, we all have something to learn here. 
You may say, Rick, why do we have to go there? Because as Paul said in Acts 20 verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And God has a word to say to us about money. I don't know why. I don't know why this morning or why right now. But I know he wants us to understand something. Look at verse 9. Jesus goes on, and, and he's going to. This will rattle your cage. He says in verse 9, I say to you, make friends of yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Let me give you some financial principles here from Jesus, not from me. Number one, spend for the kingdom persuasively. Spend for the kingdom persuasively. Unlike the righteous manager or unrighteous manager, Jesus says, use money to plan for the future eternally. But listen, listen. He says, use the money, yes, take even the wealth of unrighteousness, because money is unrighteous. Money's not a good thing, folks. It is one of the biggest problems that we have in the world. As a matter of fact, did you know Jesus spoke more about money than he did about anything else in the Bible? Did you know that even though the longest chapter in the Bible is Psalm 119, dealing with the Word of God, the second longest chapter in the Bible is number 7, which deals with offerings, money. I don't think that's by coincidence. I believe, I am convinced, and I, man, God needs to shake all of us in this. We need to learn how to handle money in a godly way, not in a human way. Because our human way messes us up. So, Jesus says, use the wealth of unrighteousness. Use it. So that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwelling. Spend for the kingdom. If this verse is confusing, ask yourself, why will these friends I've made receive me into eternal dwellings? And the answer is simple, because they're there. Because they're there. Riches... Proverbs 11.4 say, Do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Gang, Jacob understood this. In that, he was willing to use all of his resources to save his sons. All he wanted to do was bring his sons home. And Jesus is saying the same thing. Use all your resources to save my sons. So that my daughters are home. And if you're using money for a kingdom perspective, if you use your finances spiritually, if you're planning ahead financially, spiritually for the future, then somebody is going to get saved because of your money. Now that just sounds weird. You're saying I can buy someone's salvation? Yes and no. I'm saying if we use our money the right way, someone, because of the influence somewhere along the line, will be saved by it. And that person is going to be there to receive you into eternal dwellings when your job on earth fails, when your life fails, when you die, when you're done here. Use the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. Spend for the kingdom. Use whatever financial resources God has placed at your disposal for the salvation of others. Jacob uses his resources to save his sons, and the Lord wants us to do the same. What does that look like? I want to share with you guys something. We got this cool letter from Masudi. Masudi is a compassion child that Cheryl and I have sponsored, and our kids, our family has sponsored for quite a while now. He's getting really tall. He's almost as tall as Corey. 
And Masudi writes this, and it's being translated and it's very difficult to read, so I'll do my best here. Masudi says that he has great joy to send you his greetings in the name of Jesus. Masudi, by the way, lives in uh, Tanzania. Is that right? Tanzania? Tanzania. Um, he says that himself together with his family are all doing well. He says that he is grateful to the nice gift which you sent him. He received the money and with his money he was able to buy a, let's see, a mattress, a blanket, bathroom sandals, juice, soap, sugar, biscuits. That'd be a great Christmas, guys. Kids. Masudi's a kid and he's thrilled about buying sandals. That'll turn you around. He also took a photo and he paid for it himself. And we have the photo at home. It's great. Masudi asks you to look at the photo he is sending you, for he took that photo with his mother and all the items that he bought. And he's there. He's standing with his mom. He's got all the things around him that he bought, the sandals and the blanket. And he's just, he's so proud. He's so proud and he's so happy. But he says, God bless you for your graciously giving heart. His mother greets you also as she sends her special thanks to you for sending a gift to her son. She says, God bless you so much. And Masudi says that at the center on Saturday, he learned a Bible verse from Isaiah. Then he writes, when will you be coming to visit me? God bless you so much, he says. Rick and Cheryl and the kids, they're just doing something big for the kingdom, aren't they? Guys, it's 25 bucks a month. I throw that away on lunch. This is not a sacrifice for me. Okay? So understand, I'm not reading this to you to say, ooh, look, look at what I'm doing. But as little as $25 a month to this kid makes all the difference in the world. I'm going to share with you the verse out of Isaiah that he shared in a minute. But how can I use money, unrighteous money, what Peter and Paul call filthy lucre, how can I use this stuff for the kingdom? Well, there's one example, Masudi, saying God bless you at a Bible center memorizing verses, a kid in Tanzania. <laughs> That's one way. How about other missions opportunities? Local needs, church tithes and offerings, loaning, loaning to friends with no expectation of return. Not allowing money to cause you to go crossways in relationships. How about placing a higher premium on relationships than on cash? How about spending persuasively for the kingdom? Well, Jesus goes on in verse 10. He says, He is faithful. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Right now we are living with that which is another's. We have not received that which is our own yet. We're managers, folks. And Jesus says the way we handle that is critical. Secondly, Secondly, spiritual shrewdness brings honored responsibility. Jesus would say, he does say, there's a connection. A link between the wise discerning handling of money and kingdom responsibility. That is the responsibilities God gives you, the role he gives you after you die or you're raptured. Luke chapter 12 verse 42. The Lord said, who is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. 
In Revelation chapter 5 verse 10, I've mentioned this before, speaking of the church, says, You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. In Jesus' millennial kingdom, we're told there will be reigning going on. We will rule and reign with Him. And the role that you have in Jesus' government is directly, Jesus says, Jesus says, connected to how you handle money on earth. Man, I don't like talking about money. It makes me so uncomfortable. What about all the other nice spiritual things we can talk about? Jesus is talking about it. Look at verse 13. He says, No servant can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot, you cannot, let me emphasize this, you cannot serve God and money. You can't do it. I'm not making this up. This is Jesus speaking. You can't do it. If you think that you're one of the exceptions to the rule, you can't do it. Your Creator knows the hearts of His created, and we cannot serve God and money. Number three, serve the Lord exclusively. Again, this has nothing to do with how much or how little you may have. It has to do with what you worship and where your heart is. I've known people who were incredibly blessed, who were the most gifting, generous people in the world, who gave and gave and gave and gave, and the Lord just kept giving them more. You've heard the phrase, you can't outgive God. It's not a pastor phrase. It's not a catchphrase that someone came up with and said, oh, that'll work in a sermon. It's true. You can't do it. Try it. Oh, I'm not going to try that. That's risky. Yes, it is. But try it. You cannot give more than God will provide for you. The more you give, the more God provides. So you give more, and He provides more. That's how it works. But folks, I've also known not-so-wealthy people who God has not blessed because they think of nothing but money. This is not a statement about who's better, richer or poorer. It has nothing to do with that. No matter what you have, God has, God has a flat tax. It's not really a tax. Because you have the freedom of whether or not you're going to choose to do it. But God says, let me make it easy for you. Why don't you just give 10% of whatever it is you make? And if you make $2 an hour, then you give 20 cents of that. If you make $200,000 an hour, then give 10% of that. Make it easy for you. And they say, ah, I don't know. I just I don't have it to give. For 35 years of my life, for 15 years of my marriage, my wife said to me, why don't we just try giving? Why don't we just try tithing? And I would say, why don't you just look at the finances? We can't do it. We can't do it. I don't have 10%. I don't have 5 I don't have 2%. In the budget. We're going paycheck to paycheck as it is. You can't do it. You're right. We can't do it. But whose stuff is it? I'm just the manager. And it doesn't matter what I can and can't or think I can and cannot do. God can do it. Luke 21 verse 2. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts in the treasury. And he saw a poor widow putting in two copper coins. And he said, truly I say to you, this widow put in more than all of them. For they all out of their surplus put into the offering. But she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. How much did she have? Two coins. How much did she put in? Two coins. How much did she trust the Lord with everything? 
And Jesus looks at that and says, that is spending for the kingdom. That is serving the Lord exclusively. That is spiritually shrewd. That woman will have an honored place of responsibility in the kingdom. And the question, folks, is what are we going to do with what we have? The word for wealth, by the way, that Jesus uses is mammonus. Mammon. And mammon is a word that personifies wealth as God. It deifies wealth. There are some who believe, and I need to say this more to see if this is the case, but some who have said that there was a Syrian god named Mammonus that was a money god, a finance god, and you prayed and worshipped that god for more wealth. We live in an age where people worship money more than any time in history. We as believers are stuck in this place. And Jesus says it, you can't serve God and money. You cannot do it. You cannot worship God and worship your money. It's going to be one or the other. One of the two will win. 1 Timothy 6.9 For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So I'm not supposed to serve unrighteous wealth, but I'm supposed to use unrighteous wealth to save people. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. You take this bad thing, you take this unrighteous, tainted thing called money, and you use it for the kingdom. That's what Jesus is saying. Wait a minute, my money's tainted? Think about this, folks. The cash that flows through your hands, that is in many of our wallets this morning, has been used as payoffs for murder. It has been used for drugs. In fact, they even say that every piece of money has a little bit of cocaine on it. Don't know if you knew that. People are going, really? Can't see that. Your money that fits in your wallet, somebody has paid to a prostitute. Someone has used it for some kind of sick, immoral sin because our money just goes round and round. Kind of like flying internationally in, a, in an airplane. You know, this is, we have smoke-free airplanes now in America, but when you fly international, there's still the smoking section. Man, it gets into the vents and comes right back around and non-smoking. <laughs> That's what our money does. It goes round and round, and it's filthy. And it is sick. And it is used for all manner of sin. And God says, I want you to grab a hold of that unrighteous mammon and use it for the kingdom. Turn it around. So that there's someone out there who's paying off someone else for some sick sin and using the money that actually (laughs) saves somebody over here. We've got to step back from our view of money and look at it the way God does. It is a tool that is used for the kingdom, a tool that is useful for the kingdom, and useful, folks, for nothing else. Am I serving the Lord or money? Last two verses. Now the Pharisees, verse 14, who were lovers of money... These religious guys, oh, they love their money. We're listening to all these things and we're scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. Now listen to this and don't miss these words of Jesus. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. Those things that we look at and go, wow. Isn't that great? Look at those two tall buildings. They're so amazing. They stand taller than the entire New York skyline. Aren't they magnificent? Amazing to us. Detestable to God. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that God caused the towers to fall. But there are many things in the world that we look at, our money included, and think so highly of. 
And God says, it means nothing to me. The last thing I want you to write down, as Jesus zeroes in on the scoffing Pharisees and says, God knows your hearts. Number four, store up in your hearts for eternity. Matthew 6.20, Jesus says, Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, but where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where you put your money, that's where your heart goes. That's where your heart will be, where your money is. And again, please hear me. This is not a plea for giving to the bridge. This is a plea for each one of us spiritually to see money the way God does. To live the way God wants us to live. To have a faith that is about Him. Kind of like Jacob when he says, I will use all of my resources if I have to, to save my sons. So what are we going to do? Jesus would say, spend shrewdly, serve the Lord, store up for eternity, so that when your life fails, you will be received in heaven by the very same people who praise God that you were a shrewd steward of blessing. That you spent your money for the kingdom first. I told you I would read to you the memory verse that my little Tanzanian friend memorized. It's amazing to me. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9. We'll read this and we're done. Masudi memorized, Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. How much is God's eternal plan worth to you as a manager of what He's given you? And my encouragement to each of you today is spend accordingly. Let's pray. Father, You alone know along with each one of us individually, how we spend our money and where our money sits right now. And God, I I pray as we consider these things, that you'd make us uncomfortable. That you would cause us to squirm if need be, Father. Because we recognize in all of this, your grace. God, you love us so much that the very thing that trips us up more than anything else, you're willing to go head to head with for our salvation. God, would you just forgive us for the way we've handled money and for actually thinking it's ours to use as we please. Would you forgive us, Lord, for thinking that that we can do whatever we want for ignoring you and, and the kingdom when it comes to our pocketbooks. God, would you convict us because you love us and because you want us to grow. And teach us to trust you more than anything else. To know that we have a God who loves us, who is our master and who does know what our needs are. And help us to live that way. And God, may people be saved 
because we were willing to put more into the backpacks. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Normally I do kind of an altar call. I'm not doing that this morning. Um, I don't know if I can impress upon you what has been impressed on me over the last couple of weeks of studying this. Hey, Hayden, sit down. Sit down. We're not done. I don't know if I can get across to you the emotion that I've been going through in two weeks of looking at these things. Because again, it's not about making anybody feel guilty. But we have a God who loves us so much, so much, that what He wants for us is to grow beyond where we are. And Jesus knows that the thing that traps us more than anything else, it's money. It is. My family's ready to leave, I think. (laughs) Can I just encourage you all, think about where it's going. Think about what you're doing with it. Not because of me, but because your Lord loves you so much and because there are people whose literally, literally their lives will be saved and changed because of decisions we make with our money. God wants us to move from where we're at. He wants us to mature. And this is part of the process.